Weed is everywhere right now in New York City. From unlicensed bodegas on seemingly every single city block to a handful of legal shops in lower Manhattan. Meanwhile, the state is getting ready to pull in a lot of tax revenue from the now legal marketplace. $56 million, that's how much tax revenue New York is expected to take in from sales of pot, legal sales. But New York's rollout of legal weed hasn't exactly been smooth. Of the more than 900 applications the state received, only 36 were approved. And now the entire issue is tied up in the courts because earlier this month, a federal judge essentially stopped license approval in certain parts of New York. This is the Hellgate Podcast. I'm Max Rivlin-Nadler, one of the co-owners of Hellgate, a worker-owned news outlet that you should definitely subscribe to. On today's episode, we're going to look at the rollout of New York's legal weed industry. Later in this episode, I'm going to talk to journalist Brad Racino. Brad's written a series of articles about New York's cannabis social equity programs and how one former NBA all-star has somehow played a major role in one of the initiatives. But first, another weird wrinkle in New York's weed program. New York's legal weed has to be grown outdoors. That's for a couple of reasons, a few of them environmental, like cutting down on electricity use and water use, and another one is just to help out local organic farmers. But weed grown outdoors, a lot of people find that it's less potent than the stuff grown in highly specialized environments like a grow house. So that means New York's legal weed could be seen as kind of the weaker stuff. Hellgate's Katie Way convened a highly scientific weed roundtable with some dedicated stoners to sample both gray market weed and legal weed and see if there is really a difference or if it's all just in your head. I'm Katie. I'm a writer editor at Hellgate and I am convening a panel of some of the uh, finest minds in the recreational weed smoking game to test the difference between the unlicensed gray market smoke shop weed and that that fine licensed housing works herb. Hey, I'm Trey Smith, artless weed celebrity. I'm Akil Spooner. I smoke a lot of weed and uh, I guess that's it. I don't know. <laughs> Sick. Um, I'm Jess Zeidman. Uh, I'm an indie film producer, so I can smoke weed in the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, ha- I had to smoke before I came here just so I wouldn't get like too high when I was here. Because I feel like the first smoke of the day. Right? You don't want to get too silly right? on the podcast. Right. Exactly. I don't want to like, awesome. just sit here and be like completely couch lock and like. I didn't do that, but I, um, I, I'm going to be good. I'm actually going to be awesome. So, (laughs) so we have the florist farms, five pack of half gram joints, wedding cake, hybrid, you know, 29% THC, 3% CBD, lots of information legally vetted. And then we have, uh, the lift tickets, wonder Brett live resin infused cannabis pre-rolls, which I got from someone named uh, Matthew who was wearing sunglasses inside. If that's like a, that's a vibe check. It is allegedly 28% THC and 0.05% CBD. Uh, The flower is a strain called Cherry Trop and the live resin is Peach OZK. 
Not sure what that stands for. We can maybe look it up later. Both of these were purchased within like a few blocks of each other. One on Broadway, one in St. Mark's, and you can already, there's a visual, you know, disparity. This one's got a little fancier tip on the end. It's like multicolored and a nice little design. And it also says lift tickets on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So that's the one. So yeah, so I'm going to go with the live resin one there since it's the same name as a live resin one. And then, yeah, this one, the packaging's a little clearer. And, yeah, it's just, like, a little sleeker, a little more like, hey, I'm a dad who's also a creative director who makes, like, a quarter million dollars a year for some reason. And this is what I smoke to look like, very aesthetic. So, yeah. Um, they smell pretty much the same, though. I'm so interested in this because, like, obviously neither space is, like, super regulated, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you know what the difference is? And also, but when I smoke bodega weed versus, like, quote-unquote actual weed, um, it feels different. Like, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm very interested. I'm fascinated. I do think what's so fun about all the bodega weed is it's trying so hard. Like, it's having such a time. Like, the packaging is really, like, it's got a graffiti vibe. It's got so much flower that you can see it's got like all of that going on and that is like when you pass those bodegas now it is just like rainbow pot leaves everywhere in a way that you're like okay totally and i think it's funny that everything that's very legal is very like apple store like yeah that's the vibe so i feel like the thing that makes the most sense to me is to try like one all at the same time and then try the other one but i guess before we do that do you guys want to talk about, like, what your expectations are? My expectations are that the bodega weed is going to be really high really quickly, and then it's going to drop off pretty quickly. Like, it's not going to be a sustained, like, buzz at the same level for a long time. So I'm interested to see what the difference in, like, the initial versus the, the later effects of it are. Totally. I feel like anytime I've smoked the bodega weed, it's kind of like, whoa, I guess this is weed. And then it's over as soon as I've had that thought. Exactly. <laughs> and the bodega weed also like is rarely what people say it is. Yes, like it's yeah. like, oh, this is sativa. And then like next thing you know, like your couch locked and shit. Trying to watch Bob's Burgers. You can't tell the difference between the characters anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah, I say we do the bodega weed second because I want to be able to talk when we're talking about the store weed. Okay. Yeah, totally. Whatever is clever. Right. I like all weed, so. Yeah. Awesome. All right. I have, I have my cup of lighters. <laughs> okay. So. This is a great setup, by the way. Thank yeah. you. Tastes good. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It's good. Tastes like weed. <laughs> I love this. Nice, smooth first hit. Very smooth. Super, super smooth. What was, like, can we ask what the price differential was? Um, I will say that the bodega weed was more expensive. Yeah, so a five pack from Housing Works was $44. And then a from- A weed at 29%? Yeah. That's pretty, that's a pretty good deal. Cause they're, they're just like half gram. Like it's not like the full sized joints. Okay. Which is not, not no, that's horrible. A, actually no, that, I don't that makes sense. Road, so like that's yeah, labor right. cost too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Mm. sure. I know, my joints do not look like this. <laughs> At all. Um, and then the, the stuff was uh, 50. Well, it's interesting. I was talking to one of my friends about like the new weed. He just moved to Astoria, so mm -hmm. he's like a very. It's a very like neighborhood 
neighborhoody place, and mm-hmm. there was this bodega below him. And then a weed shop moved in, and like the vibe changed. Mm-hmm. So it, he was speculating about like the rate of gentrification and the way that these new weed shops like play into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like they're almost hand in hand. Yeah, like when I lived in Williamsburg like earlier last year. New weed shop popped up on the corner, and like all the tias and the abuelas who had been there forever, they were just not happy about it. Mm. Yeah, and it forced, it forced yeah. all the old, all of the older people who had been there, like just hanging out at the bodega, like completely forced them mm. out, and like further away from Thirty First Avenue where he lives. Mm. Yeah, it uh, it really has affected the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. especially like in some of the more like nightlifey neighborhoods, and all they're just like fucking three, four, five every two blocks, and mm-hmm. yep. I don't know who's going to survive this or not, but, yeah. yeah. Also, like, it's the Wild West out here. I walked into one one time and just straight up offered me Coke, and I was like, that's not what we're supposed to be selling right now. Nope. Yeah. That's probably why y'all keep getting robbed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, where are y'all typically getting your weed? Like, what's what's the typical route? When I'm, like, feeling cute and I got money, I usually buy from this grower in Oakland, um... But usually I buy from a delivery service. They're there, it's cash, they're there within 10 to 60 minutes. And if they're late, they're like very much in contact with you, mm-hmm. which I really love. I have friends who have other friends who are growers and I like just put an order in through that way sometimes. Yeah. But if I'm running out, I'll go to just one of like the storefronts. Mm-hmm. It's like convenient as hell. You don't have to wait for your delivery guy to maybe show up within mm. an hour, like you said, mm. and then not hang out at your house for like 30 minutes. And <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm already late, dude. Like, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but um, yeah, the storefronts, they're easy. I can get some like weird Korean potato chips mm-hmm. and some candy and a soda that I can't even pronounce and then my weed mm. and I'm out. Yeah. 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 Um, for a while, I was big team like go to Massachusetts and buy a bunch of weed. But a friend of mine turned me on to a really good, like queer owned delivery service. Sorry. Now I'm getting stoned. I was like, <laughs> something's going on with me right now. Sorry guys. I'm pretty high right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is, I just got the second wave of this, uh, where it was like the build up, and now it's just like, Oh, what kind of platform? Yeah. Right yeah. Now? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This is where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm having a good time. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I'm wondering, should we try number two? So bad. <laughs> oh wow, okay. It's so bad. I really think it's so bad. <laughs> what's the what's the terroir like on this one? I don't know if this makes sense, but it tastes like if you lit dirty pool water on fire. There's definitely like a like a cleaning product no, taste. I don't like I wanna try this. Mm. Thank you. It's like, this would just be, like, potpourri. Yeah, that's And, like, the yeah, and, like, yeah. we wouldn't be the any wiser. Except I'm... Yeah, I'm not even getting that high yet. Ew, this doesn't... Ew. Well, yeah, I have to Matthew, say. what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck, Matthew? I want I want to expose the address, but maybe, <laughs> maybe I should. No, that doesn't... It just it just doesn't taste like weed. Yeah, you guys you guys can put these ones down. You know, fat. These are... Really? <laughs> I really want to... I want to see what's going to happen. Yeah. This is evening out my prior high. Yeah. I would agree with yeah. that. So it's, it's bringing you down. I would say so. Yeah. So it's bringing me back up. Mm. Yeah. Like, I was feeling, like, nice and relaxed and this, that, and the other. 
And now this one's making me like weirdly, I like want to do push-ups for some reason. Hyper. <laughs> yeah, like, man, fuck this weed. <laughs> I mean, also the first, the first strain that we smoked was so smooth and so nice mm-hmm. that like you're gonna feel a difference afterwards for sure. So yeah, we yeah. sort of set ourselves up to hate this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it, I definitely think this would be good to get. If you were already out and you wanted to smoke some weed, this cherry drop would be perfect for you. Because the more you smoke it, the more it tastes less bad. Sure. Yeah. Like the initial big boom is kind of mellowing down and it's just kind of like tangy. Yeah. So overall, how would you how would you guys compare the two the two the two joints, the unlicensed versus the licensed? What do you think? Obviously, the licensed legal joint was much nicer, but there was kind of nothing wrong with the other one. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I totally came around as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost smoked the whole thing. His <laughs> room was like, I'm not even so high. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah. It depends on, like, I think it totally depends on what kind of smoker you are and, like, mm. what kind of thing you like about the experience, whether that be, like, if you're really taste sensitive, if you're really like aesthetically oriented or like stuff like that, I'm sure could influence what you choose. But I think because the price point's so similar, it's more just like probably do what's easier and you're gonna have not the same, but similar experience. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. The first one was like, or the legal one felt better going down, I guess, because the second one was definitely harsher and it didn't taste as good, but I like the high equally, you know, They're, everything is situational to me. So these are just good for different situations. Yeah, I think it was the initial beginning of the climb with the second one that kind of threw me off, we'll say. Yeah. <laughs> but as I'm going through the different peaks and valleys of it, I got to say it's like a decent little strain. All right, sweet. And everyone can take home, feel free to take home. Your joints, obviously. But feel free to not. You know, I don't care. Yeah, whatever. Just, you know, complimentary. Compliments of Hellgate. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Oh my God. Thank you for doing it. It was Hi there. This is Max Rivlin Nadler, a reporter and co owner of Hellgate. Do you like our podcast so far? Would you like even more Hellgate in your life? Does the idea of a fishing column excite you? Then subscribe. Hellgate is New York City's only worker-owned news site. Our goal is to bring our readers stories that are trenchant, playful, outraged, irreverent, and useful, and never a chore to read. Go to hellgatenyc slash products to subscribe. Okay, back to the podcast. Now, we're going to look at the other side of the legal market, the people selling it. I'm joined now by Brad Racino, a reporter at New York Cannabis Insider, who has been covering the state's legal marketplace. He's done some pretty great investigations into some very strange things afoot, and one involving a former NBA All-Star. So, Brad, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Happy to be here. So the idea um, basically was New York is doing its cannabis industry rollout a lot differently than a lot of other states with this kind of a foregrounding of social justice issues, making sure people directly impacted um, by criminalization are able to get licenses and have, you know, basically 
as equal a playing field as possible to some of the larger uh, players coming into the cannabis world. So one of the ideas behind this was to actually um, get retail spaces built out for these would-be cannabis entrepreneurs. So your reporting really is focused on the role of the dormitory authority of the state of New York, which is an interesting um, state agency that I know very little about. So really, what was the idea here behind the dormitory authority building out retail spaces for these um, weed license holders? So that is a very good question. The dormitory authority, which is known as DASNY, has been in operation in New York for about 80 years or so. They are a humongous agency with a multi-billion dollar budget. And they initially were responsible for building out dorms. And then they think they got into hospitals and they kept expanding um, to the point now where they build all kinds of things across the state. And Governor Kathy Hochul in March of 22 announced this program called Seeding Opportunity Initiative. And one of the parts was, you know, getting farmers licensed ahead of time so they could get seeds in the ground to start growing THC. Um, And another component was this social equity fund that, as you mentioned, would pay for the build outs of roughly 150 retail spots for justice involved individuals. And DASNY was chosen to be responsible for that aspect of this program. So they oversee the site locations, you know, finding them, uh, negotiating with landlords, executing leases, uh, refurbishing these retail spots, basically to the point where it's a turnkey operation, where they can hand these licensees a key and they have an operational retail spot. Um, But it hasn't played out that way so far. Right. So the idea being that um, people wouldn't have to worry about all of this capital intensive infrastructure. But in, in rolling it out, the state didn't provide all of the money, right? The idea was that I think half of the money needed for these build-outs would come from elsewhere? More than that. So the state pledged $50 million for a $200 million fund. So the idea was $50 million from the state and then $150 million from private investors who wanted to invest in this fund and through loans and, and percentages of you know rates of return, see some money back over the long term. All right. So somebody has to raise this money to build out these spaces. What was the selection process between who would raise that money um, and, and how kind of transparent was it? Things get kind of weird in Albany, right? Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, like DASNY is a very strange agency. I knew nothing about them before this process started. And when I started talking to other veteran reporters in New York State, a lot of eyebrows were raised when I mentioned DASNY being involved in this because apparently they have quite a sordid history. But anyway, to your question, uh, they put out, DASNY put out a, an RFP in, I want to say it was March or April of 2022 for a fund manager. And that person would be responsible for finding and raising $150 million and then overseeing that fund, like managing that fund. Um, And they eventually made a decision uh, in June of 22, last summer. 
That is already a pretty tight deadline with this promise from the state that some of these retail license holders would be selling by the end of 2022. So things have to move fast. And now enters a name that maybe some people would know. How does former NBA All-Star Chris Webber figure into this whole story? So that was surprising to see uh, when they announced who won this contract. Chris Weber got into the cannabis game a few years back through launching his own brand called Players Only. I don't know if it's actually sold anywhere, but he did form up a relationship with the company Cookies, which is like the biggest you know, global cannabis brand that there is. And then he also has a business partner. Her name is Lavetta Willis, um, who they kind of run this this enterprise together. And they were doing a lot of stuff for saying they were doing a lot of stuff in Detroit, how they got to New York. I have no idea. Um, but they're only one half of the team that was picked for the fund management. The other half is Siebert William Schenk and they're like an investment company. They don't have any history with cannabis, but they have a lot of history with fundraising impact funds, investments and such. They have a headquarters here, so it's like Chris Weber and his business partner, Lavetta Willis, and then Siebert William Schenk is, is in totality this group called Social Equity Impact Ventures that was picked to run this fund. But for Weber and his associates, um, what's kind of in it for them? So if they raise this $150 million or if they don't or if they raise it and don't disperse it, what do they get? Are they getting money from the state or are they getting commissions? What's their kind of goal here? So. That's a really good question. And I went back to the original RFP for this and tried to find that. And it's not, from what I remember, it is not like a flat fee. I think that there is a percentage attached to the amount that they raise. What else they could get out of it is that, you know, Weber has this financial tie with the largest global cannabis brand, uh, Cookies, which is already set up shop in New York City. They're a retail outlet for now, but they're going to want to get into the market. So, Personally, for him and for his business partner, I can see there being more financial motivation for this than just whatever they're getting from the DASNY relationship, but actually having a foothold in New York for their players-only cannabis brand. We did a whole expose on this in November about their undisclosed conflicts of interest with cookies that you know was never talked about uh, by DASNY or by anybody else. Right. So that $150 million would have to be raised to basically make this work. And it would be raised from investors who want to get a little bit in on the New York cannabis market. But on top of that, maybe earn a little bit of money from this really lucrative market that's about to open in New York state. When did things begin to appear amiss to some of the people that wanted to get licenses or had already gotten licenses and were counting on this program to really get them over the finish line and like give them a retail spot? When did things go kind of sideways? I was getting asked questions like a month after they were hired. So last July or so, I had people reaching out saying, how are they doing raising the money? You know, we got this short timeline. What's going on? You know, uh, first of all, fundraising in cannabis is just not easy. There's so many hurdles that it's 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 very hard to do. But this association between Chris Weber and this $100 million impact fund um, called the Weber Wild Fund that was announced before they were hired for this. Um, this was supposed to be a fund that he was involved in that would help entrepreneurs and cannabis entrepreneurs of color uh, around the country get their businesses going. And when I started hearing from people saying, you know, 
this fund isn't real. That raised you know the hairs on my back saying, what are you talking about? And so I started poking around last summer, asking more and more questions. And then really when we started asking DASNY specifically for updates, for information, for you know, just something about what is going on here and their reticence to ever say a word, give us any information about anything, that also raised some red flags. So I would think it was probably by September, October of last year that we were pretty confident there was something going very, very wrong here. Um, and then, you know, as we continued, we found that 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 was true. So what went wrong? What was happening to all this money or this idea that money would be raised from these private um, sources that would go to help these young entrepreneurs who were looking to break into the market? They weren't raising it. They weren't able to. Now, to be fair, I have no idea if they went out and did all the legwork and just for whatever reason couldn't get it or if they weren't calling the right people. I had some investors read some of our stories and reach out to me after publication saying, you know, I, I was never contacted. I manage a $500 million fund. Why didn't they reach out to me? But I, I don't know what their hurdles were. I can say to their defense that we didn't know this till recently, but in the, the response to the DASNY RFP, this team, Social Equity Impact Ventures, did tell DASNY that their timeline for expecting to raise these funds was extremely aggressive. DASNY wanted these funds completely raised by September 1st. And these people were announced June 15th or something of 2022. So DASNY was warned that this was going to be a tough putt. Then, I mean, it was um, January 27th, MJ Biz Daily had an article where the CEO of DASNY, Ruben McDaniel, who also sits on the New York State Cannabis Control Board, told this reporter straight up that they have $0 in that fund. And this is after us asking every other week for months for an update on how much has been raised. He just went out and said it. Right. So, I mean, you've had an issue with transparency from DASNY. Um, what lengths have you gone to to try to uncover what went into the selection process and, you know, just getting basic responses like the head offered up, which was that they have no money? This agency is just like time and time again they are completely opaque. Um, it seems like they are not beholden to any accountability. So what we needed to do was understand why did they pick this team? Like if this team isn't doing its job, are they qualified to do this? And to figure that out, we wanted to see what the team proposed to DASNY in their response to the RFP, which is usually something of like, here's why we should do this. Here's our expertise. Here's our qualifications, what we've done in the past. Uh, so we knew from research that a lot of what Chris Weber and Levetta Willis had said publicly in the last couple of years regarding their other ventures was not true. So I wanted to see, did they cite those things in this RFP that we knew were untrue? Or is there something else going on where DASNY felt this team is qualified to do this? So we put in a, a freedom of information law request for that and just were not getting a response. It took us exactly 100 days for them to turn this over. And they only did so after I had to get the New York Coalition of Open Government involved, which is an independent state agency that fights for FOIL transparency and stuff. And then I, you know, two or two and a half months into it, I said, screw this and started publishing a story every single day about them not turning over the documents, which was fun. Um, and so I think it was kind of that pressure that finally got them after 100 days to turn this packet over of information that was pretty enlightening for what had been going on. 
trying to figure out why they chose this group, you mentioned it before that a lot of the things that the Weber group said that they had done um, was not true. How does your research into this involve an empty, uh, I believe it's like a parking lot in Detroit? What I wanted to do early on was, you know, look into what are the qualifications of Chris Weber and his company? Um, What have they done in the past? So one was this $100 million impact fund that I talked about. Um, That took us about a week or two to contact about 20 something people around the country, mainly black cannabis entrepreneurs who were engaged in conversations with this Weber wild fund a year and a half ago up to current times um, and never saw a dime. And in fact, saw the Weber wild team basically just ghost them after conversations. And the other major thing was that Chris Weber announced in his partnership with cookies that they were building this massive cannabis compound in Detroit. And it was going to be like a nine acre facility with grow houses. And it was going to employ hundreds of people. It was going to revitalize downtown Detroit. And I remember looking at the timeline of that press release and being like, this was a while ago. Where's this at? So I just went on Google and searched, couldn't find anything, not a speck of information about this thing after the press release, which had been whatever, 18 months ago. Then I went on Google Maps and took a look at the actual address and it was a whole bunch of broken down warehouses. And then I hired a guy off Craigslist who was a photographer just for like a hundred bucks and sent him down there in November just to take photos, take video, scope it out himself. And he did and came back and said, there's nothing going on here. And then I finally got a statement from the city of Detroit saying they had no idea what was happening with that facility, that they hadn't heard anything about it. So it turned out like that was something that I think they maybe purchased some of the land and then just have done zero with it. Absolutely nothing. So that never checked out. And that's why we hired a guy off Craigslist to go to a facility in Detroit. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go to see something that's not there. (laughs) So, which, you know, brings us to today, which, you know, we're talking in the middle of February. And uh, I think right now we've got two dispensaries now open. Have any of them been opened through this DASNY um, function or, or build out? So there's there's only two open right now this week. Um, but the the first is a nonprofit. That, so it's not doing anything with the DASNY funds or the build-outs. The second was one of those justice-involved individuals. They're operating out of basically a pop-up in Manhattan uh, that DASNY helped facilitate. Then they're going to shut down for a month or two months while they actually build out the real location. Uh, There is another nonprofit opening up soon. And then the second justice-involved places is opening in Queens shortly after. That one will also be with DASNY. Uh, help and facilitation. But entirely with state funds, none of the money that's been generated from this venture, as far as you can tell. Yeah, as far as I can tell. Um, I, if they don't have any money from the private stuff, then it's all it's all state funds. And um, I, I guess my final question is, you know, in terms of the larger rollout of the cannabis industry in New York, New York likes to say a lot that it is doing something no other state has done by, you know, really trying to level the playing field here is what New York is trying to do all that different. And how would you say the rollout has gone, considering that right now we are still looking at just a handful of legal shops and thousands of unlicensed shops? it does appear that this is very, very unique in, in you know, saying no to the multi-state operators, the big billion dollar publicly traded companies saying you cannot 
form a monopoly from the beginning here. We're going to let in the people who are most harmed by prohibition. I think it's hard to argue that that's not admirable. However, it's so complex and there are so many egos and politics at play and money and power and like it gets really messy. And I think to the Office of Cannabis Management's credit, they were kind of handed a little bit of a hard situation from the beginning because after Governor Cuomo signed the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, he did nothing for six months. He just sat on it. And then Hochul, when she came into office, that was her like her first thing she did was start appointing members. But there's like five people in that office the first couple of weeks, and they're only half staff now. So I know they are running themselves ragged to try and do things right. That said, they're also finding every opportunity to shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> and to like not listen to people who know what they're doing or like who have been in this space for a long time. And now they're grappling with this giant problem of the proliferation of these unlicensed shops. So I think the rollout has been very rocky, um, especially when you throw in the lawsuit that has created an injunction in five different regions of the state and how that plays out, because that's not just like, okay, we're not going to license in these five spots for a while. It's like, that's the holding pattern until a judge really decides what's going on. And it's possible they may shut this whole thing down. And if that happens, like it's just going to be an absolute mess. So there's a lot of variables right now. Um, it's fun. It's fun to report on. It's not, I can't imagine fun to actually be a part of right now. And it's gotta be terrifying for these people, especially the people that New York says they want to set up for success and help. And these are the people at the end of the day who are hurting. Brad Racino, thanks so much for speaking with me. Uh, your work has been incredible um, and uh, and really uh, deserves a, a lot of uh, exposure. So where can people find your reporting? Um, it's a couple places. So we're, we publish on Syracuse.com. We also publish on NewYorkUpstate.com, all one word. And find me on Twitter. It's just at Brad Racino. And you can find all our stuff through there, too. Awesome. Brad Racino, NY Cannabis Insider. Thanks for joining us. All right, that's it for this week's Hellgate podcast. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. Support our work by subscribing at hellgatenyc.com. Our editorial team is Adlin Jackson, Nick Pinto, Christopher Robbins, Esther Wong, Katie Way, and me, Max Rivlin-Nadler. Nadia Tykolsker is our business manager. Lauren Vespoli is our producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find their music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutch Phrase Studio. During the week, check out hellgatenyc.com for daily reporting, in-depth investigations, and more stories about New York City. Special thanks to Trey Smith, Akil Spooner, Jess Zeidman, and Brad Racino. We'll see you next time.